Welcome to the Sock and Shock Pod. Uh, I'm your host, Daniel Schaff. Um, as you may have already figured out, I'm riding solo on this one. But don't fear, uh, we have a great interview for you today. We have uh, Maryland great Len Elmore. He is the all-time leading rebounder in Maryland basketball history. He also played uh, nine seasons in the ABA and NBA. And uh, now he's a sports sportscaster, sports reporter. Um, it was a great interview. Uh, I had a really good time. I uh, hope you enjoy. We now welcome to the pod Len Elmore. Len Elmore is currently a sportscaster, but he is most well-known for his exploits on the hardwood. At the University of Maryland, where we go now, uh, Elmore was a three-time All-ACC selection from 1972 to 1974, and as a senior, was a National All-American. He still holds the Maryland record for most career rebounds and rebounds in a single season. In 1974, he was drafted 13th overall by the Washington Bullets, and he played in the NBA for nine seasons for the Pacers, Kings, Bucks, Nets, and Knicks. Um, it's uh, my pleasure to welcome Mr. Len Elmore to the pod today. Welcome. Hey, thanks. Nice to be here. Uh, pleasure's ours. Well, mine right now. Um, so I, uh, I like to prepare, and I was watching some film of uh, your 1974 team. Oh. Uh, you know, John Lucas, you know, Tom McMillan, good, good players, you know, and um, people don't really realize how good your team was because you didn't make the tournament because of the way it was situated then was there were, no, there were just auto bids. And you guys lost in the ACC championship to NC State. What do you think if that if there had been a field of 68, what do you think, how far do you think that team could have reached? Oh, I'm not even um i'm not even hesitant to say that we are a final four team i mean there's mm -hmm. no question about it if we played up to our caliber uh we would definitely have been a final four team and you know when you listen to uh nc state after they won the championship they were asked who was the toughest team they played and you know norm sloan said it was us by far uh right. so, and that to me was um you know, gracious enough, certainly, but it, it held some truth. Um, but the problem was, as you mentioned, uh, automatic bids, you can only take one from uh, the ACC, and that was the winner of the ACC tournament. NC mm -hmm. State was ranked number one. We were ranked number four at the time in the tournament, and we lost to them in overtime, but we were ranked number four in the nation, and it was uh, absurd that, you know, in, out of the 32-team field that uh, we couldn't go. Uh, because we had lost to the number one team. And I think uh, they recognized the absurdity the following year and expanded the field. Obviously too late right. for us, exactly. but, but our game had impact. Yeah, and you got to face uh, David Thompson, who obviously went on to continue to do great things in the NBA. What was it like playing against him? Uh, David, uh, at the time, pretty much revolutionized the game um, with his leaping ability at 6'4", 6'5". Uh, he was able to play inside as well as outside at a deft uh, jump shot. Remember, there was no three-point shots in, mm -hmm. in the game then. Uh, but he was the he was the most difficult matchup because he could leap over uh, guys his size and smaller, and he was um, too quick for guys who were um, who were taller who could match him in the air. So uh, he presented. Uh, a, a very tough and a very difficult matchup, and it kind of skewed everyone's defenses towards him, and he made guys like Tom Burleson and Monty Tao better because of his, his capabilities. Right, and I, I was watching a bit of that game, the ACC championship game, and uh, I saw Tao could really shoot the deep ball. 
Yeah, Monty Tyler. I mean, look, it was at five, 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 six. You had right. to master the deep ball, otherwise you couldn't exactly. play. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you grew up in New York City. You went to uh, Power Memorial, which obviously, you know, um, people remember Power Memorial because of Kareem at the right. time, Alcindor. Um, growing up in the city, in, in the city, who was your role model in basketball? Um, I, honestly, I, I, if I could say anyone, I guess it was Luel Cinder who mm. ultimately became Queen Abdul-Jabbar. But, you know, a lot of that had to do with the fact that I didn't start playing basketball until uh, the organized basketball until that 10th grade year when I entered wow. power. You know, I was a baseball player and, and played uh, some football. But, mm. you know, basketball intrigued me and I was goofing around with some kids in my public school, junior high school, uh, and I had a PE teacher recognize the fact that, you know, I was a pretty tall kid. I think I was about in the ninth grade, I was about six, five, six, mm-hmm. six, and asked me what I'd like to play against kids my size, which, you know, obviously playing to my insecurities. Of course I said yes. And took me down to power. And, you know, there was a scrimmage that, uh, which essentially amounted to a, a tryout. Uh, so, you know, jump ball at the center court, uh, problem was i didn't know the rules of basketball so when i went up and they tipped it i was still standing at half court wondering <laughs> how do you guys know which way to run i had right. no idea wow. uh but you know I, I made up for the learning curve in my sophomore year played in the rucker tournament where you know everyone gets a reputation made for themselves and you know i became mm-hmm. a better defensive player and, and a rebounder at the time in my junior year i was a uh, all city, all New York City. My senior year, all city, all American, and you know, it's uh, the rest is history. But it, it came down to the fact that I, I accepted the challenge, and in in many ways, I was motivated by the fact that I hated to be embarrassed. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you really yeah. focus on what you're doing. So, so in three years, you went from someone who had never played a game of basketball, at least in an organized setting, to an all American. Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of it had to do with the fact that I had played other sports. And, and that's why I tell parents and kids today, do not limit uh, young people to just one sport as they're developing. I mean, that's because you develop so many different skills that eventually when you decide on the sport you want to play, you can harness those skills and make you a better player. Right. What position do you play in baseball? Uh, I played the outfield, um, some first base, and I pitched a little, but mostly played the outfield. Nice, nice. That's why I like I like Aaron Judge because yeah. I, I could see myself out there at six and eight, six nine, right, right. with yeah, with, a, a, with a good arm. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big Yankees fan, so it's good to hear. You a Yankees fan as well? Absolutely, since yeah. I was six years old. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I uh, I have a picture of myself when I was like less than a year old in like a Yankees onesie, so it was kind of <laughs> it didn't really have a choice, but yeah, so um. You were talking about the Rucker tournament, and um, you hear a lot of stories of these streetball legends. So, were there any players who no, no, people don't really know about who you played against or you saw play who were out of this world talented but never really made it? Well, I mean, there are a couple of guys who come to mind, and uh, one of them is a gentleman by the name of Pee Wee Kirkland, who mm-hmm. I'm sure anybody who knows anything about uh, playground basketball in New York City heard of Pee Wee. Very dynamic uh, player, both on and off the court. Uh, you know, came with an entourage. You know, wore uh, you know just the the latest uh, style clothing. Tried to outdo Walt Frazier, who was 
called Clyde at the time because mm -hmm. of his Bonnie and Clyde outfits, et cetera. And Pee Wee Kirkland is a guy who could play a, a six, three guard, um, who had great handle, could shoot the ball, could get to the basket. And he became a legend, obviously, and he's a legend also because of, unfortunately, the things he did off the court as well and was able to combine them. Um, you know, I'm sure if he had it to do over again, he'd make a different choice in life and probably had an opportunity to compete against the guys he, in many ways, destroyed in the summertime. And then there was a guy by the name of Joe Hammond, the same thing. Joe wasn't as flashy as, as Pee Wee Kirkland, but Joe Hammond had all the tools and, in fact, uh, you know, after watching him on the court in the Rucker tournament, he got an offer, I think it was from the L.A. Lakers, as legend goes. And he turned it down because he said he made more money slinging drugs than right. making, uh, than he would make playing in the NBA. And, wow. you know, obviously he would have been um, a different fish in the NBA. Very competitive enough and was uh, talented enough to, that he probably could have lasted a long time. But, you know, there are times when guys just don't have the psyche and, and may be afraid to step out of their element um, and, and find excuses not to do it. Uh, but those two guys could have played with anyone anywhere. Yeah. It's really hard to hear those stories when you, you know, yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not old enough to really, like, you know, necessarily have those same kind of stories that, you know, in, in my frame of reference, but to hear about them and to think what could have been is really rough. Yeah, and, and again, to see those guys today, um, which a couple of years ago, I kind of saw them at a um, at a basketball tournament. Uh, and, you know, I was, I was surprised that uh, both of them were there, but more importantly, the fact that they seemed in relatively good shape. But obviously, they, when you talk to them, they, they obviously have their regrets. But, you know, you can't live on regrets. you got to move forward. And I'm, right. I'm pretty happy that they seem to have moved on. So um, you played nine seasons in the, in the NBA. Actually played played eight seasons in, in the NBA, two in the ABA. But oh, I was with the Pacers. That was the Pacers, right. And the Pacers were the two years in the ABA, and then we got incorporated into the NBA. Right. I had one season where I only played six games because I wrecked my knee. Ooh. Um, so what was your favorite moment in your basketball playing career? Wow. Um, you know, no, that's a tough general question. Yeah, I mean, look, I didn't win any championships. I played on some very good teams, but we just were never good enough. But then, then I look back and see, you could probably say 85% of the people or maybe even 90% of the people who played professional basketball never won a ring. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think gratifying a couple of things. One, um, you know, I scored 35 points in a game in the ABA against the uh, spirit of St. Louis front line that included Marvin Barnes, uh, Moses Malone, wow. and uh, Maurice Lucas. Uh, That's the front line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was the year I averaged almost 15 points and 11 rebounds. It was right before I hurt my knee, mm -hmm. which um, – you know, changed my game tremendously. But uh, that's one. Uh, the other thing would be the going to the New Jersey Nets, where as an elder statesman, you know, I still had some skills. I went from a, a backup with the Milwaukee Bucks to a starter with the Nets, a young team that um, actually it was the Maryland front line. The starting front line was Albert King, myself, and Buck Williams. Wow. And, uh, you know, a young team like that, we started out 2-14 and 14 under Larry Brown, but mm -hmm. somehow righted the ship, won 43, 44 games that year and made the playoffs. So, 
you know, that to me was a crowning achievement because I could be as much of a contributor, but also kind of a, a mentor to, to a young team. And that ACC flavor, I mean, notwithstanding Albert and Buck, we had Michael Korn from North Carolina, Mike Jeminski uh, from Duke. And so, you know, we had a, a bit of an ACC flavor and was able to, as I said, right the ship and, and go on a, a pretty good win streak that uh, ultimately got us in the playoffs. And I look at that and, you know, feel really good about the, the contribution. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, uh, you hear, like, especially in baseball, you know, hear about the guys in the uh, our Yankees, you know, CC and Brett Gardner being those guys who can kind of help the youngsters come up. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's, 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 people don't really realize how important that is until they see young teams flame out, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's important to have somebody with experience and leadership. You know, my skills weren't the same as they were prior to hurting my knee in the years afterwards. You know, you learn how to play a different type of ball game, but nevertheless, you still have something to contribute. And, and that was kind of the apex of a contribution post-injury to be able to play on a team like that with young players to be looked upon as a team leader and, again, to be able to you know, help a team make the playoffs. Right. And um, so after your playing career, you know, uh, you ended up transitioning to broadcasting. So um, what's the most memorable, memorable, memorable moment you had as a member of the media? Well, let me back up for a second. After um, – after I retired from basketball, recognizing that I needed a job back mm -hmm. then, we didn't get paid anywhere near right. what these guys are getting paid. I, uh, 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 I, it, I was admitted to Harvard Law School, graduated mm -hmm. there, and then I was a prosecutor in Brooklyn, New York, and went into private practice and had done some things. And I guess I got an opportunity to do television. Um, so during the time I was a uh, I was an attorney. I also had the opportunity to do a few games. Uh, began with Jefferson Pilot Raycom doing ACC games. I think I was the first African American announcer that they had, and that was wow. 19. That was actually while I was in law school, 1985, and continued that. But um, when you're talking about memorable moments in my 30 some odd years of broadcasting, Obviously, doing uh, a couple of games that were uh, kind of monumental. Uh, Vern Lundquist and I, we did the first uh, the 15 beating a two game. That was uh, Richmond when they Richmond. beat Syracuse. Yeah. And then, of course, the Kentucky-Duke game, able to call that game when Leitner hit the, the shot at the buzzer. Um, you know, those, those were obviously memorable games, historic games. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can still look back on those and say among – the games that I had done are probably the the most fun, if nothing yeah. else, particularly in retrospect. Uh, what, what was it like being in the gym when that shot went down? Uh, it was obviously electric. Um, you recognize that the, the game came to a sudden halt with that shot. You know, we were able to analyze it over and over again. I think Rick Pitino made a mistake not putting a man on the ball and gave mm -hmm. Grant Hill um, open vision to find Leitner and then uh, John Pelfrey from Kentucky, rather than challenge Leitner, he kind of backed off because I'm sure they probably said, don't foul anybody, but they gave Leitner a wide open look. And people remember Leitner went 10 for 10 that game. So it was a perfect uh, a confluence of perfection on his part. And, 
you know, a little bad luck on the part of, of Kentucky. But in the end, it was, it was a pretty good game. Now, uh, I can make a comparison. The game we referenced earlier, Maryland versus NC State, a lot of people up until the Kentucky-Duke game were saying that was uh, the, the best college basketball game ever played. And our game, while it didn't have the sudden ending, had a tremendous about a, amount of skill level dis, mm-hmm. displayed. We had a lot of juniors and seniors at about seven first round uh, NBA picks in that game. Um, so it was a uh, it was pretty pretty comparable both of those uh, games. Having played in one of the so called greatest games and having called one of the so called greatest games, uh, you know, it's, it's something to to behold. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um... So you mentioned um, how many seniors you had on your team, how many juniors and seniors, and how many upperclassmen. So as someone who's watched college basketball for a while, what do you think about the one-and-done era and the potential for the none-and-done era and how that, will, how that has impacted college basketball and how a high school to the pros rule would impact the NBA? Well, I mean, to back up and say originally it was none and done. High schoolers right, right, could right. leave and go to the NBA if they were drafted. And, you know, obviously I thought that a lot of mistakes were made by owners and and their scouts in giving a lot of money to a lot of untested young people. And, you know, I proved to be right. A lot of those guys did not make it. Of course, you always have the prodigies, uh, LeBron James's and uh, Kevin Garnett's, Kobe Bryant's, et cetera. But for every one of those, there were guys who fell by the wayside eventually because they just weren't ready. They weren't mature enough. Uh, their talents weren't developed enough. Um, and now you go to one and done. And I always believed that one and done was um, designed more for NBA owners to give them a chance to evaluate uh, young people before they paid them the, the large sums of money. And, um, you know, that proved to be true, that that was an evaluation period, whether they admitted it or not. Um, Then nowadays, uh, with the change in the game, and I'm not so sure the game has changed for the better, um, and it certainly affected the NBA game, um, the one-and-dones, you know, that time is shortening now uh, because of the college, uh, so-called corruption in college basketball. I think that within the next year or two that both the Players Association and the league are going to remove that requirement that you play in the, that you play in college or that you literally have to wait until you're 19 in your class. I think the first year of graduation, I mean, not first year of graduation, but the first year of college has to be completed. Um, you know, I think eventually it's going to come down to the point where you're going to have one and uh, none and done once again. And I'm not so sure how good that's going to be for the NBA unless they have safeguards, you know, being able to send guys to the, uh, the G League for further development, being able to farm guys out to leagues overseas, keep their rights, and after they've developed a year or two to bring them back. But as it stands now, the NBA game to me, is just a game of up and down, you know, they call it space and pace, but mm-hmm. essentially all it is is spread the floor, shoot jump shots, uh, mostly threes, and every once in a while make some uh, penetration to the basket, but too much mm-hmm. one-on-one, not enough team play. Uh, very few teams move the ball except for Golden State and San Antonio. Those are the only two teams that come to mind that where they really move the ball and play more of a team game. But that's, that's the impact uh, of having – so many young players 
dominating, uh, you know, the, the draft and, and certainly going into the league, that it's really hard to teach guys fundamental skills. That's where college should come in. But, you know, unfortunately, they don't stay long enough. Right. That's always something that's not really brought up so much in this argument of, you know, whether a guy should go overseas to play. Like, you're delaying their you, – people talk a lot about you're delaying these top prospects earning their market value. But at the same time, you're – if they don't go play college basketball, you're depriving them learning from some of the best basketball minds in the world. Yeah. I mean, look, when people talk about delaying their market value, your market value is eventually determined, you know, once, once you get out there and play. And, you know, some guys are willing to try to fool people. They'll come out early and with all the publicity, et cetera, teams feel almost obligated to draft certain people. Uh, they come out too early and they're not ready to play. Okay, they make some dollars. But in the end, it's really the second contract, not the first contract that you're playing for. And, and who wants to go out and fool, um, essentially fool the scouts into drafting you when you know you don't have the goods for to maintain the staying power? You know, if I'm a player today, I want to make sure that I'm as equipped as much as I can be before mm -hmm. I get out there because I'm not playing for the first contract. Yeah, you can make pretty good money um, in a first contract, but if you don't get to the second contract where everybody seems to be breaking the bank, then, you know, for me, it's, it's just not worth it. Uh, you know, an education is, is worth as much, if not more, at that period of time. Right. So um, speaking of education, you mentioned that you, you went to Harvard Law School and then became a prosecutor. What made you want to transition from the MBA into law school and pursue that? Well, I always wanted to be a lawyer, even before I became a basketball player. Um, you know, I'm a kid that grew up uh, in the tumultuous times where... You know, it was a civil rights struggle. It was a war in Vietnam. Uh, you know, kind of a political, political divide that was harsh, almost comparable to today. And you know, I thought the law could affect change, um, could bring social justice. And you know, as a kid, I was involved in in a lot of things. Even in high school, I almost got kicked out of high school because I organized. You know, a, a group to go march in a Vietnam War moratorium, and, and the brothers didn't like that. But in the end, uh, you know, I was a student council president, so I was supposed to be the leader, and I was trying to affect my leadership. But in the end, I, I always kept that to be, you know, a voice for the voiceless to try to bring power to the powerless. Uh, you know, working for the underdog. I used to watch Perry Mason and some of the other lawyer shows as a kid on a constant basis. So that's really what I wanted. And as I look back, you know, I can say that basketball kind of interrupted that quest. But fortunately, you know, I got the great opportunity afterwards to um, take the LSATs, do pretty well, and, and get accepted to law school and, and to be able to go out and, and practice. I, you know, I didn't want to practice for large firms, large corporate firms. What I wanted to do was get my hands uh, roll up my sleeves and get my hands involved with the community. And, you know, as a prosecutor, you're more proactive and you can make sure that, uh, you know, there's an element of fairness in the in the criminal justice system if you choose to, at least to the extent that you could. Right. That's, that's pretty inspiring. You know, people sometimes talk about going to law for the money, but it's, it's, it's nice and refreshing to hear about, you know, people trying to help people out, no matter what they're in. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's from which I come, you know, being born in Brooklyn. I went back to my, my hometown roots. Um, and certainly wanted to 
wanted to have some impact on a community basis, trying to help the community and, and you know, protect them from uh, from prey being preyed upon, and more than anything, you know, being able to you know set an example. So. Okay. So, last question. Um, if you were able to go talk to yourself, say your high school self or like your college self, what would you tell yourself about you know how to navigate the ABA, the MBA, and um, or or just life in general? Uh, what would I tell my younger self? I, I think that for the most part, I did the right thing. I think that uh, you know the injury element uh my second year I, I got slowed down by an injury i took a cortisone shot not realizing that you know it was a mask for something that probably was uh more serious and i played the rest of the year and that's the year that like i said i averaged uh, almost 15 and 11. Um, but the next year in training camp that ligament popped and so i recognized that maybe i shouldn't have done that uh you know, the cortisone shot, maybe I should have just either let it rest or worked it in some other way to get uh, some kind of rehabilitative work attached to it. And it cost me. But nevertheless, when I look back, I, I can't complain about my life. Um, you know, I've been pretty blessed to do a, a number of things, to marry the woman that I've been with now for 45 years, to have two wonderful kids. So I would tell myself, hey, you know, just stay on the on the right track, stay focused on what it is uh, that you want and to be able to continue to go after it. Uh, you know, I don't have any regrets. That's great. You know, that's, that's kind of what we're all striving for, isn't it? Absolutely. That's hopefully that, um, you know, there are ups and downs and things you wish didn't happen, but uh, from a regret standpoint, uh, you know, you live your life as best as you can. And I think that I have. Uh, that's great, you know, and um, thank you so much for coming on. Sure, my pleasure. Really appreciate it, and uh, best of luck with everything. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you.